me, let me put numbers on it for your exponential groups podcast. Here we go. It's those with heavy involvement in small groups, $1,874 per person hmm. compared against the lesser small groups, $1,727, which is an 11% difference. That's nothing to sneeze at. Welcome to the Exponential Groups podcast. I'm Alan White, your host. This podcast is designed to help you take the guesswork out of groups. In each episode, you will discover effective ways to recruit more leaders, form better groups, and make more disciples. Please subscribe to this monthly podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our first guest is Dr. Warren Bird. Warren Bird is the Vice President of Research and Equipping at the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Just prior to his work at ECFA, Warren served for 13 years at Leadership Network. He is the author or co-author of 33 books, including Hero Maker with Dave Ferguson, How to Break Church Growth Barriers with Carl George, Next, Pastoral Succession that Works with William Vanderblumen, and Better Together, Making Church Mergers Work with Jim Tomberlin. Warren is widely recognized as one of the nation's experts on megachurches. As Lynn Sweet once tweeted, no one knows more about megachurches than Warren Bird. I'd like to welcome my very first guest, uh, Dr. Warren Bird. Warren, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to be here, Alan. Thank you. Now, Warren, I, I've known you. We, we've met the last few years. I've known you for a number of years through your books. How many books have you written at this point? 33, authored or co-authored. 33 authored or co-authored. I kind of think of you as kind of the Tony Bennett of Christian authors and that you do duets with a lot of people. And Tony Bennett does a lot of duets. So I'm assuming your next book then would be with somebody like Lady Gaga, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, she hasn't reached out to me, uh, but I love working with Christian leaders to tell and multiply the impact of their story uh, because so many leaders are God is doing an amazing thing, and either they don't have the time or the, or the, the, the desire to do the work necessary to translate a marvelous story uh, into book form. Yeah, and just, you know, the books that have impacted me were books like with Carl George, uh, Hero Maker, uh, with Dave Ferguson, and uh, a number of those books. And so thank you for your work, your contribution to the kingdom. When I talk to you, when I listen to you, you're, you're kind of, you have this encyclopedic knowledge of the church and movements and what's going on. And it's, it's, uh, it's great to, to hear you and your contribution uh, to what churches are doing. Well, when Jeopardy has that column on uh, uh, growing church trivia, uh, I'm ready to take Ken Jennings on. There you go, and I, I think that you would you would do that do that well. So, what I want to talk about today is um, recently you did a megachurch survey, which is a with the Hartford Institute that's done about every five years, and this was I think the sixth time around. Yes, since 2005, 2010, 2015, and 2020, which gives us a, a longevity perspective on issues like you know how multiracial. Uh, is the typical megachurch. And mm. that actually became the headline for our report because it's just so uh, dramatically increased in recent years. And by the way, the report's free download at ecfa.church slash surveys. And it's uh, called Megachurch 2020. 
And I'll be sure and put that link uh, in the show notes. So let's talk about, so why study megachurches? And in your mind, what is a megachurch? Well, a megachurch, by common definition, is 2,000 or more people on a typical weekend. That's adults and children, and I guess you'd say pre-pandemic. And there's nothing magical about 2,000. It's simply the threshold that says there is a level of complexity, organizational complexity. There are layers of leadership and leadership development. There are certain things that, that won't happen without intentionality, like greeters uh, are necessary at a large church, whereas a smaller church, uh, a very small church, everybody knows each other, and you may not necessarily need uh, to create that welcoming feeling uh, by having official greeters. So certain things that, that, ha- that uniquely happen uh, at that size and larger. There are, uh, you mentioned the amount of churches in the United States, mega churches are half of 1% of the amount of Protestant churches in the United States. And yet on a typical weekend, I guess we should say pre-pandemic, almost 10% of people who went to Protestant worship, worshiped in a very large church of 2000 attendants or higher. So there's, there's a large draw, but there's also a, a influence for better or worse, the thought leaders, the idea shapers, the validators of ideas, the popularizers are disproportionately in large churches. Mm-hmm. So they become bellwethers uh, for a lot of things and diffusers of uh, best practices uh, in many ways, not because they want the monopoly, but that's just the dynamics of large size. Yeah. And I think too, if, if a mega church doesn't experiment and they lose a hundred people or a thousand people, that's not so devastating. But if that happens to more of a regular size church, I think the average size in the United States is about 90 members. Uh, they lose a hundred people. Uh, that's big trouble. Well, so, you've actually put your finger on one of the distinctives. A guy named Everett Rogers wrote a book called Diffusion of Innovations mm-hmm. uh, many years ago and pointed out that the larger organizations have more capacity for experimentation where they can try something. If it tanks, uh, it's not going to sink the whole ship. If it works well, it can uh, be increased. And innovation so often happens on the margins. So you need a degree of margin and resources on those margins uh, to be able to try lots of innovations. Of course, anybody at any size can try something new, to, especially as we emerge from the pandemic with all the stuff that's been torn down and people left and right are gonna say, well, let's open <laughs> our Bibles and see what must be uh, part of the foundation. Let's see what some of the stuff we've added that that we might not want to add uh, um, that's not necessarily required by scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's do some experimentation. So there will be, there has been more experimentation and will be more experimentation over this, uh, say, three-year period that started early 2020 than there would have been in 30 years of church life. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, as terrible as the pandemic has been, Um, I've encouraged pastors, anything they want to start, anything they want to end, that 
your excuse is, well, we're going to do this because of COVID, or we're not going to do that anymore because of COVID. Um, that could be your excuse. And then if you do something and it works, you can keep it. If you do something and it didn't work as great, you can say, well, we only did that because of COVID, but we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> so I think that there, there are some ways that, you know, you know, things have accelerated, uh, but there are some ways to try things. And I think, you know, the other thing too is, you know, if you're in a smaller church, um, you, you know, you let the larger churches be the guinea pig, if you will. And then the things that are, are tried and true, the things that are proven, then, you know, if you're in a, a smaller congregation, you can try more of a sure thing and less of a, uh, something that's experimental. Um, now in this survey, um, and you mentioned megachurches, um, sometimes we think of megachurches, we think of a Saddleback or a North Point, but there's kind of a range of megachurches. In fact, so, at one point, somebody coined the term gigachurches that were 10,000 or larger. Right? So what? How, how big are these megachurches that you surveyed? So if if the definition of megachurch is 2,000 attendants, adults and children and higher, uh -huh. the, the median in our survey was right above 4,000. So first of all, these, these giant churches that, are, that do make the headlines quickly, they are few and far in number. And I, by my count, there are only about 70 some odd churches that are 10,000 attendants on a typical weekend or, or higher. But the more important thing to understand, and this is part of one of the trends that uh, the, the survey that we did, we identified 24 different trends and made a graphic for each. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun skim and a quick skim if you, when you download and look at it. But one of the things we learned is they're not growing bigger by having these gargantuan sanctuaries. So the, the Joel Olstein uh, 16,000 seat compact center arena, those are really rare. The, the typical megachurch seats 1,400 mm. in their largest seating capacity um, room. And that's because not only do our megachurches characterized by multiple services on a weekend, but the larger you get, the more likely you are to be multi-site, uh, mm -hmm. one church in two or more locations. Uh, and those locations are of many different sizes. Uh, so you, 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 you grow larger <laughs> by getting smaller in terms of meeting location. And then we're going to really zero in on small groups coming up. Mm -hmm. You grow larger in the worship setting by this, directly by the strength of your small group network, whatever you call that. But we'll, we'll come to that for now. Uh, think seating capacity of just over a thousand mm -hmm. and uh and that, that that's the kind of operation that responded to our survey yeah no that's that's good and uh, so so in the survey as a whole what what were some of the bigger findings you mentioned there were quite a number but what were kind of some of the big categories uh, that you found that uh, were happening in these mega churches well, the first one that I alluded to is the growth in, in multiracial, where def defined as 20% or more of the non-majority race is present. So if it's if it's 75% Anglo and 25% Hispanic or whatever, you would call that multiracial. And of course, it's never purely like that. But we did this survey, you know, as we mentioned, every five years. Back in 2000, 21% of megachurches were multiracial mm -hmm. 
in 2020, 58% were multiracial. So that's a dramatic increase over the years. That's yeah. one big finding. Mm -hmm. uh, another huge finding involves small groups. And I'm gonna hold off on that because we'll, we'll come back and unpack that uh, in great detail. Uh, an, another finding is the rise in mergers. Um, one out of three multi-site campuses comes by way of mergers. And uh, the amount of mergers that have involved a megachurch in recent years has multiplied. And frankly, with the pandemic, uh, those that went into it financially weak, um, we're gonna see a lot more mergers uh, coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the trend, many of the trends that we found were parallel to what you see in all sides of churches. For example, frequency of worship attendance is down. Mm -hmm. uh, in my childhood, I remember seeing someone wearing the perfect attendance pen, you know, was there <laughs> 52 weeks. And now even your most involved uh, elders and others, you know, if they're there two or three weeks uh, a month, you know, again, pre-pandemic, um, that's great. Now, not that they're vegging out the other week. Maybe they're they're visiting a, a child and going to their church. Maybe they're, uh, there's a divorce situation and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's custody changes and just all kinds of variations that uh, explain our mobile society's lack of uh, or decrease in, in person. Mm -hmm. uh, but that that was one of the many trends that uh, paralleled churches of all sizes. One that's, that I think will encourage everyone is the involvement in the local community. Hmm. Uh, meaning we ask questions about what do you do beyond the walls of your church? And that could be foreign overseas missions to uh, soup kitchens locally to mm -hmm. other ways of proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ beyond the, uh, the fellowship of the church itself. And that was dramatically on a rise. And mm. interestingly, we correlated, you know, growing churches with uh, engagement issues, such as more people tend to be in, uh, involved in small groups, more people tend to be uh, involved in the community. And we found lots of fun and positive and encouraging correlations that uh, hopefully will uh, encourage churches and help churches of all sizes. Um, we found special needs ministries, mm. uh, ministries to people with special needs, adults and children on the rise in large churches. And I have little doubt that uh, the parallel survey that's been done but has not been finished uh, of, of less than mega church sized churches that ask those same questions will likewise find that uh, uh, ministry to those with special needs is on the rise. Um, now back to megachurch, just one more trend. We found that their peak growth period tends to be between years five and 19 for hmm. the senior pastors. So on the one hand, uh, we probably all heard the encouragement, you know, go for longevity. Uh, and your, your fruitfulness will come. Well, there's, there's an evidence that after about the five-year mark, um, uh, fruitfulness, at least in terms of attendance, uh, shows up. But th there's also the issue of, of uh, is there a point where I'm 
I'm past my effectiveness peak in this particular role in the church. And again, we just surveyed senior pastors, but we found that uh, after about, um, as you enter year 20 and beyond in the same church, that the growth of the congregation uh, does not occur at the same rate or amount. Uh, interestingly, we asked about spiritual vitality mm -hmm. and found that the peak of that is between years 10 and 14 hmm. under the same senior pastor. So there's a lot to uh, unpack and we have a little discussion and chart for most of the things I've said, plus more. Uh, but uh, those were some of the highlights to me and some of the uh, encouraging and sobering things to look for. And I think there were very interesting findings and some things that I didn't really expect myself. And we're, of course, we're going to focus on uh, small groups because that's the nature of this podcast. But I do encourage you to download uh, the full report and uh, you can get it as a PDF and I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. But there's a lot of valuable information that I wish we could do five or six episodes with you, Warren, and cover every single aspect of this. But well, um, wait, before, before we dig into small groups, let me right. highlight one more thing. Since right, I right. work for the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, ECFA, uh -huh. which really involves seven statements, seven integrity statements of, of, of doing church to be above reproach so that the focus is on Jesus and not on some bad practice. We tested churches. We threw in a bunch of those statements and to see do, do those churches tend to be more growing than others, you know, and, and some of the statements were like, uh, do you have a degree of appropriate financial disclosure? Do you have a board that is an independent board, meaning not mm -hmm. the pastor's family or paid staff as the majority and so forth? And we found those that practice the integrity affirmations seem to be healthier. Mm. on a bunch of uh, different counts. So that was a very uh, personally uh, encouraging result. Okay. No, that's, that's very good. And that was, that was worth the, that was worth the detour there, but uh, definitely, but uh, yeah, obviously churches need to give their people confidence that when they're contributing, that the money is going where it should be and being managed properly, but uh, also for the staff to have the accountability um, to know that, um, you know, somebody's kind of looking over your shoulder, seeing what's going on. So I think that's, that's very good. Thank you for adding that. So let's, let's turn to the small group piece. And so as far as the survey is concerned, um, what did, how did you define a small group? We did not. We simply said, gave example groups within the whole subunits, mm -hmm. such as Sunday school, small group, men's fellowship, uh, and we rattled off several examples. Uh, and we actually used several names that would be common today for um, small groups in particular, home mm -hmm. groups, community groups, missional groups. Mm -hmm. and, and we ask, to me, the, the most eye-opening question, and this, this is a question that has been asked year after year, how central are small groups to your strategy of Christian nurture and spiritual formation. And uh, we ask, you know, is it, is it not at all? Is it a little or is it a lot? We only gave them the three choices. And of those who said it's a lot, 90% mm -hmm. 
So let me just say that again. 90% of large churches are saying that their small group strategy, whatever it is, is central to spiritual formation and Christian nurture. And uh, that has grown from the first time we asked that question back in the year 2000, 50%. And it's been a steady uphill, which to me is encapsulized by the idea of you grow bigger by getting smaller or in today's health terms, Mm -hmm. uh, spiritual vitality and health are measured not in the excitement and electricity of the large group gathering, but what is happening underneath in the discipleship, the leadership development, the one another care, uh, the the Bible uh, study and application that's occurring in the in-your-face level Mm -hmm. of a small group. No, and that's that's great because you are reaching the community, drawing more. And I mean, it's not unlike, in some ways, Jesus's model. Jesus could draw the crowd of 5,000 plus, and yet he invested in the 12 who ended up carrying out um, the mission. So they're, they're, I'm, I'm not going to invalidate either one. I tend more toward the group piece than, you know, some of the stuff that happens on the weekend, but I think well, both, well, let me, let me both tell are you important. A, a factoid, okay. not from this report, but something that we put in, Dave Ferguson and I put in the book Hero Maker, which mm-hmm. is the idea that I'm not the hero, but I'm making others the hero. Yes. That uh, we found somebody who had studied the uh, the gospels and, and logged out what percent of Jesus' time is recorded in the big groups that we all think about, a sermon on the mount, mm-hmm, the feeding mm-hmm. of the 5,000 and so forth, the big crowd event, versus discipleship context with the 12. And actually 76% is what he came up with, that Jesus spent his time in with his apprentices, if you want to call them that, in, in, in a spiritual formation, in leadership development, uh, with his... Uh, interns, you could also call, Mm -hmm. uh, his ministry residents, that that was really where Jesus, or at least the Gospels, spend the most time in emphasizing uh, what he did. And likewise, in our application of of church, how easy it is to describe the big crowd events, but Mm -hmm. really, is there something happening underneath, and how vital and strong and central is it? And frankly, the pandemic now, this is our survey. We, we finished it just before the pandemic mm-hmm. started. Mm-hmm. Um, but from anecdotal stuff I've heard, uh, you know, some small group, some churches have, have come to say, man, our lifeblood during the pandemic is in the lay leadership of the caring that's going to occur, whether by Zoom or anything else, uh, in our small groups versus other churches that have just said, well, I'm, I'm hoping they're listening to my online sermons and that, uh, that uh, discipleship is occurring that way. And I, I would predict that coming out of the pandemic, those churches that had that healthy underneath vital group network of lay empowerment, lay leadership, pastors supporting their lay leaders, uh, is gonna, they're going to emerge stronger, healthier, and frankly, growing more as the church uh, regathers. Yeah, and I would even add that you know pastors that are are hearing this podcast that maybe your small groups are not quite where you want them to be. Um, this is the time 
you know, do something short term, throw something out. Here's, here's some sermon discussion questions you can gather with your friends, whatever platform you're comfortable with. And let's get people connected during this time. And I think it's a time definitely where they could grow rather than just having to hunker down and wait till all of us blows over because, you know, I, we thought 2021 would be different than 2020 and it's feels like more of the same right now. So I think rather than waiting it out until an opportune time to launch groups, uh, let's launch groups right now. And, and here's a felt need you can do it on if you want. I know of one church that three different times so far during the pandemic, they've, they had a strong small group system, but they said, now, if anybody wants to do part of a four-week online small group dealing with stress and anxiety, hmm. what does the Bible say? And how can we learn how to cast all our cares upon the Lord? Uh, and within days, every time they announced it, the groups filled. Uh, wow. And, you know, this was just a four week, but it, it helped get people connected. And then they had a strategy of, okay, now that people have been part of this group, if they're not part of another group, how do we connect them with the more on ongoing group? And of course, the, the strategy was they trained the leaders first, and then they, they said, all right, we got seven leaders or whatever uh, for, for the groups. We can open up seven groups. Let's give it a shot. And I, I'm all in favor of doing so, any kind of a trial run. So you find a felt need like what you described and do a trial run now. And then in the fall, when things feel a little more quote unquote normal, then you could launch groups in a big way. And some people have already given it a test drive and decided that they, they liked it. Now, speaking of groups, going back to the survey, you see a correlation between the percentage of groups in the church and the rate of growth in that church that I found fascinating. And now we'll just take a quick break to talk about this month's featured resource, the Christian Life Trilogy from Bible Study Media. This three-part video-based small group series includes three titles, The Crucified Life, The Resurrected Life, and The Spirit-Filled Life, which aligns perfectly with Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. For more information, go to BibleStudyMedia.com or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our interview with Dr. Warren Bird. Yes, that was a fascinating discovery. What we did is we divided up all the survey responses into two groups. Those who indicated that 40% or, le or, or less of their congregation, their adult congregation was involved in small groups. And those who said 41% or more of their congregation is involved in small groups. And why that dividing point? Because that was about the halfway mark in our responses. And, and so then we looked at a whole bunch of other questions. Um, and, and, and you think, well, is there really that much of a difference? But, but listen to this, who volunteers regularly at church? The smaller percent of small groups, only 27% of their people volunteer regularly hmm. at church. Whereas the more intense small groups, 40%. So you get the contrast. I'll give you the less than first and the and the greater than uh, second are involved with recruiting new people. Now you know every church of every size grows primarily by people inviting their friends, neighbors, relatives, business associates. Mm -hmm. So the the smaller small group amount. 42% are involved in inviting new people. The larger small group, 
are involved with. I mean, these are not uh, just slight differences. These, so you want to you want to see God bless the church in a whole lot of areas. Um, underscore your small group. Build a vital, strong mm -hmm. uh, need meeting, uh, disciple making uh, small group system, and you'll see all kinds of spinoff. Here's another contrast. Talk about their faith with those who are not part of the congregation. 44% versus 56%. Um, in terms of the church themselves, grew rapidly over the last five years. 23% versus 43%. This, this one's a, a inspiring to me. Do service projects in the local community. 43% versus 57%. So the translation, I've seen this in other research, that Christians who are involved in their churches tend also, you know, they give money, those who give money at church tend to give money to other causes. Those mm. who volunteer at church tend to volunteer in community and other things outside their church. That that the spiritual formation patterns that uh, small group life reinforces in the church are bearing fruit in uh, impacting the greater society for Christ. Uh, so there's there that's one of the many tables that you'll see, and there's mm -hmm. there's even more if you want to look it up again. Uh, ECFA.church/surveys plural and uh, look for megachurch2020. Uh, but uh, yes, a dramatic difference between when a majority of a congregation is involved in small groups. You know, I even wonder with the 41%, if that accounts for, going back to Everett Rogers, that accounts for your innovators, your early adopters, your early mid adopters, um, that in looking at his bell curve, that's kind of that first part of the curve. And then having, you know, such a dynamic on the whole organization by capturing that particular um, group. But I, what you're sharing is, you know, it, it, it rings true, not only anecdotally with churches I've worked with, but going back and looking at uh, Ed Stetzer and uh, Eric Geiger's book, Transformational Groups, that was put out a few years ago, going all the way back to Robert uh, Wuthnow's Sharing the Journey book, a Princeton professor, and Again, a lot of the similarities that people who are in small groups, they attend more, they give more, they serve more, they invite more, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, and so they, pastors need to get more people into groups uh, that, you know, for sure, for sure. Um, and I like how, the, you know, you also tied in the idea of spiritual vitality and uh, groups playing a big part um, in spiritual vitality as well, which we touched on a little bit. Um, let's go to the idea of how does involvement in a group uh, affect per capita giving? Yeah. Now, now the logic of it makes total sense. I'm going to end with giving you a specific number. Okay. But, but you think about it. If the more I'm invested in my church, the more I'm part of it, I have, I have caring, supportive relationships. I have, I'm excited about what God is doing because I, I have a, a, a friendship base to do it with it. I, I kind of like the analogy of, of a large church to uh, going to 
back when we could go to big crowd sporting events. Mm -hmm. Well, if I go by myself, yes, the electricity is there and the excitement and all, but it's not nearly as meaningful as if I go with friends and I can turn to them and high five them and mm -hmm. talk about the play and, and walk in and out together. And, uh, you know, it just makes all the difference. And where your heart is, there your treasure is also. So when I'm engaged at that level in church, then I tend to want to put my money uh, there as well. Alan, let me, let me put numbers on it for your Exponential Groups podcast. Here we go. It's those with heavy involvement in small groups, $1,874 per person compared against the lesser small groups, $1,727, which is an 11% difference. That's nothing to sneeze at. No. And I suspect if we had run it out, you know, we just took two categories. I bet there's a straight line that we could have found those with no emphasis on small groups all the way up to those with 80% or more small groups. And by the way, for benchmarks in your church, you know, most leaders can be passionate only about three, four, at most five things that they regularly track. You know, is it is it your baptism count? Is it your professions of faith in Jesus Christ? Is it the attendance? Is it the giving? What it is? Um, one factor I really encourage you to track is what percentage of people in the church, and you can do it just adults, or you can do it adults and, and all the way through teens and students, are involved in a small group. And if you really want to go a step farther, what percent of those groups have a named apprentice leader? Mm. Meaning not just someone, oh, I think that person's going to lead next. Uh, they don't know it, uh, you know, but they, I see leadership potential there. No, someone who intentionally says, I am, I am assisting in leading this group because one day, God willing, uh, I will lead a group and I'll have an apprentice uh, assisting and learning from me. Uh, that apprentice factor is a real forecaster of the vitality of a church. But mm. so is the whole, you know, what percent of church is involved in small groups? And if those who are listening are going to say, okay, then what's a healthy aim to shoot at? Um, well, first figure out what you are and try to benchmark <laughs> above where you are. You know, if you're at 40% now, what would it take to grow to 45% or 50% by the end of the year? I know of many churches that either 60, 70, or 80% is their standard year after year that they consistently hit uh, for uh, involvement of, in small groups. And, and, and they have to identify which groups are we going to call in the small group. People who give to small groups tend to, tend to end up having a greater giving tally for the church as well. Isn't yeah. that wonderful? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 so many good things in in all of this, and obviously we're we could talk all day about how wonderful small groups are, but it's great to have not just anecdotes and not just you know oh a particular church here or there, but also research to show this is this is what we're finding with churches that are growing, with churches that are effectively reaching their communities, that uh, small groups is a core part of that. Now let's talk for a minute about the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability. Did I get that right? ECFA. ECFA, uh, yes. So um, how how can ECFA help a local church? Um, first, just go to the website and click links for like resources. 
and discover all the stuff that you don't need to reinvent. Let me just give you some examples. Uh, we do a lot of stuff with governance. Now, in a way, the governing board of a church, whatever you call it, is a small group. And in our research, most of them are not very healthy. They are mm. way underutilizing of their uh, lay leaders and uh, of, of the time, of the energy, of what a board could do. So there is all kinds of training on how do I get my board better? And frankly, we have all kinds of templates. Uh, you know, you want to do a, a self-evaluation of the board of the senior leader, of the small group system uh, in a church, of the financial audit process, whatever. We've got all kinds of templates. So, so there we can help you not reinvent the wheel. We can give you best practices. And the word free is associated with uh, so much uh, stuff that's there. That's, that's governance, that's financial integrity. Uh, that's how to advice on uh, um, fundraising for lack of that sounds, that sounds crass, but, but what do you know about the donors in your church in how do they like to be asked to give? Uh, we, we've also tracked lots of stuff. I'm the research director, so I'm biased towards this part of our website. But like during the pandemic, every three months, we ask, you know, how are you doing financially? You know, what are your, what's your outlook going ahead? Uh, have uh, what's been your PPP, uh, payroll protection program involvement. Mm -hmm. So if you want kind of pulses of what other churches and Christ-centered nonprofits are doing, um, come to us for resources. Those who want to become actual members, uh, that's the next step up. And the, 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 these are the seven integrity standards uh, of, of how to lead well, especially in the financial, but it's, it's got ripple for uh, uh, management and leadership styles and other things where we want to help you do integrity well, which will build trust, increase trust, which will increase giving and wholehearted uh, engagement. And uh, it is our joy to serve you at any of those levels. So thanks for letting me uh, explain that. I, I did, I really, I'd always heard of ECFA before I became a staff there. I had no idea all the things that ECFA has available to help church leaders. No, that's great. That's great. So small group pastors, small group directors, uh, take this information back to your senior pastor, your executive pastor, your administrator, and tell them that the number one way to increase giving in your church is to get people into small groups. And you heard it from Dr. Warren Bird. So uh, there you go. So Warren, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your work in the kingdom and all that, uh, all that you bring. And, uh, and ho I hope one day that you will get that Jeopardy category and you will walk away with <laughs> a, a large reward for that. Well, thank you, Alan. I, I really love your emphasis on exponential in small groups at every level. It's, it's such a healthy thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a needed thing. It's a biblical thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've been a pioneer in so many ways at so many levels. So may God continue to bless your work and your influence. And together, let's see heaven populated and earth made a better place as disciples of Jesus Christ are multiplied and deepened.